Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. With growing concerns about food shortages and soil resilience, people are starting to question where their food is coming from and how it's grown. Our guest today, Jonathan Webb, founder and CEO of App Harvest, is operating some of the world's largest indoor farms with the goal of improving access to nutritious food for all. App Harvest is a sustainable food company in Appalachia designed to grow non-GMO, chemical and pesticide-free produce using only recycled rainwater. They also do some pretty cool tech things as well involving robots and AI, which we're going to get into. App Harvest has been able to produce yields up to 30 times that of traditional agriculture on the same amount of land, but without agricultural runoff. The company is dedicated to farming more sustainably building a resilient domestic food supply, and providing jobs in Appalachia. Jonathan, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Yeah, thank you for having me. So everything I just said sounds somewhat unbelievable. So make it believable for us. Let's just start with the founding. I know that you have a background coming out of U.S. Army Office of Energy Initiatives. You founded App Harvest back in 2017. Tell me the impetus for the founding, and then we're going to talk about everything else since 2017. Yeah, so for me, it it really starts with the problem. And I built a career in in renewable energy. But growing up in Kentucky, one of the largest coal producing states in the U.S., you know, saw really the decline of the coal industry. And then I, on the other side, was a part of this booming industry in the U.S. of renewable energy. And we saw what happened very quickly in energy. And then seeing and hearing about the agriculture food problems, not only in the U.S., but around the world, it was how do we use technology and, and build companies to try to solve these macro global problems? And that's what really kickstarted the effort to go build App Harvest. When you went to go build App Harvest, how did you do it? We have a lot of entrepreneurs, would be entrepreneurs, future entrepreneurs. Some folks have bootstrapped on their own, others have gone for outside investment. You're publicly traded now in the NASDAQ, which, by the way, five years from founding is pretty amazing. How did you actually start and where did you get the capital to start? So I started just with a really big, bold vision of wanting to build Central Appalachia into the largest fruit and vegetable grower in North America and unpacked the data from there. And then went and found people that would be willing to sign on to a bold vision of going to tackle this with us. But going back to the problem, that's what I would pitch and that's what I would talk about. The world needs 50 to 70% more food by 2050, according to the UN. We use 70% of fresh water globally today is used for agriculture. You see all the droughts out west happening right now. That was something we talked about in our early meetings. Unfortunately, is happening much faster than what we, I think anyone would have predicted. But Colorado River is drying up. Lake Mead is drying up. Lake Powell is drying up. We've drained our freshwater reservoirs in California. And 80% of the water used in the west of the U.S., 80% of the water we use is for agriculture. So we talk about Kim Kardashian and reducing her bath time. That doesn't matter. 20% of the water consumed in the West is used by cities. So if you want to dramatically reduce that water consumption, you have to dramatically reduce agriculture's use of that water. And there's only a few ways to do it. And we're doing one of them, which is controlled environment agriculture. You know, grow food with 90% less water. It's pretty simple. It sounds really difficult. It is difficult. It's hard at scale. But the tools are in front of us, and we just have to be willing to go tackle the problems. 
outside of some of the difficulties that we're going to get into, how come it's not being done more so by larger agriculture companies? Why is it that it requires startups and bold visionaries like you and others to get this going? I don't know. I continue to bang my head against a wall. I was on on the phone last week with a pretty predominant investor globally that just called me out of the blue going, Jonathan, my wife and me are watching NBC News. We're seeing all these water drought issues in the West. Why aren't we doing this? And it's ultimately because we built a system where we treat water like it's free and abundant and we'll be here forever. And the reality is water is the one reason we're on planet Earth. No other known planet in the universe that has abundant fresh water like planet Earth. And we just treat this like, oh, well, it's it's here. And we've built really inefficient systems that are sloppy and over time will either collapse and rebuild because we're going to be preemptive or they will collapse and be rebuilt because we will do it out of sheer necessity. But I've talked to Tom Vilsack, USDA secretary, several times about this. Tom has been USDA secretary all eight years under Obama. He's been in completely under Biden. So he's been in, I guess, 12, 13 years of the last 18. I don't know what's going on in D.C. I don't know where the policy is. We scratch our head every day and the urgency and the need to reduce the amount of water we use due to agriculture is screaming at us. And we're just kind of sitting idly, twiddling our thumbs, hoping it'll change. And the reality is the only thing that'll change is the climate will continue to degrade and get worse. So if we don't start to build into the future, then we're going to see a pretty sloppy decline pretty quickly. Yeah. Or we have to move to another planet, which doesn't seem so reasonable or feasible either, because there's still a water crisis there, wherever we go. Good luck. I'm going to stay here. Others can go figure out how they want to do this on Mars, but I'm going to stay here. (laughs) How are you using AI and robotics in addition to recycled water to be able to produce the crops that you're producing? So CEA, Controlled Environment Agriculture, we've really said is the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. So 20 years ago, it was renewable energy. 10 years ago, it was electric vehicles. Tesla goes public in 2010. And then now every major automotive company in the world is moving to EVs. And right now, CEA, Controlled Environment Agriculture, we've seen a convergence of technologies from LED lights to drip irrigation to different ways in which we're using software to have precision agriculture techniques to the data we're collecting, using AI to use that data, and then robotics, both in the packaging of the product to the picking of the product down the road. And and so all of these technologies have converged and continue to get better year over year. And that is ultimately the total CEA package system. So it's not any one single point solution. It's not any one technology, but it's us automating humidity inside of our facility. It's us adding LED lights when we're not getting sunlight. So we're giving micromole light to the plant when the sun's not shining. And it's us automating for the temperature of when it's too cold, we're bringing heat in and warming up the facility. But ultimately, we're using technology to optimize nature, unleash nature, and ultimately let nature get back to us. So our job is to use any available technology that's out on the market, combine that into one system, and figure out how we can grow food year-round with far less water, far less land. Well, I guess that's the definition of adaptive technology in some ways. So when you're hiring people, so creativity, ingenuity, innovation are all requisites, but in terms of the backgrounds, you're, you're hiring people who have backgrounds in ag tech, but also tech, most likely. 
and probably some chemistry and some farming and things like that. We have a whole wide spectrum of Ivy League masters and so forth to people with a high school degree to people without a high school degree. And really, it's anyone and everyone who, yes, is willing to be creative and think through solutions that aren't currently acceptable and figure out how to build on top of that. But then just a dogged personality of we're going to get this done at all costs. And I I do think this region is known to fight through any adversity that's handed its way. And that really the central Appalachian area of faith and grit and tenacity and purpose. This area of the country, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, single-handedly powered the U.S. through an industrial revolution. This is the region that provided low-cost electricity to this country so that it could get where it was today. We've thrown the region under the bus and backed up over top of it with the transition from a coal economy to renewable energy. And I was somebody who built large-scale solar for a living, but we have not figured out how to harness what I think the U.S. has that many other countries in the world don't. And it's a personality. It's a mindset. And so we're very fortunate at App Harvest to be in this region. This is hard work. There's nothing about agriculture that's that's easy. You have to roll up your sleeves, get in farms, go make it happen. But the tenacity of this region is one of the main strong reasons why we're here. One of the things I love about you guys is that you also are educating the next generation of uh, ag tech young people. So you have these like these farm classrooms that you started. How does that work and how is it working? So I think it it was 2018. We had raised just over a million dollars into the company through, I think, two seed rounds. And I took a little over $100,000 of the million and we invested in putting technology at, at a high school. That has taken off now to where I think we're at 12 high schools this year. And ultimately, we just put technology in a classroom. We've partnered with principals and school districts that allow us to do this and let young people use software sensors and and go grow food, grow leafy greens with far less water, using less land. But teaching, we went downstream to do this and got directly in the classroom because we saw no one doing it. We're not teaching it at our public schools. I'm a graduate of public schools in Kentucky and the public university. They're an incredible school system that set me up for success. But how do we get businesses to provide tools in the classroom so young people can just go dream and think and be creative? And we thought we didn't have time to really work with in the current confines of how long would it take to get curriculum changed. We just asked if we could go in and do it and make it a before school or after school thing. And we did. And it's taken off like wildfire in the sense that you're letting a young person dream of what the future of farming is. Not a tractor, not your grandmother's way of farming, but I'm using an iPhone and an iPad to operate sensors and software and review data and look at metrics. That has been an exponentially return on that investment in the sense that we now have communities all across this region that are taking on this embodiment of we want to lead agriculture in the U.S. forward. I don't know how you put that on an Excel file. Like, I don't know how you quantify that to an investor. But the reality of the return on investment we've gotten, which is we have parents of students who've gone to school using this stuff. The parents want to come work for us. The uncle of the kid who goes, hey, my son's working on some app harvest 
technology stuff, they come work for us. How do you quantify that? Like in a time where you can't hire people around the country, I hear all the time people don't want to go to work. We have a very resilient workforce that keeps coming back. And we've kept hiring throughout all this. So the education piece for me, I hope other industries, other companies start to just do the same thing. Just go in the classroom. You look at all these marketing budgets these companies have. You have automotive companies that have multi-billion dollar marketing budgets. You have any major industries spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbyists in DC. Take just a fraction of all of that. Go into the communities you operate just invest in high school education and figure out how that investment will come roaring back towards you. I could go on for the rest of this time just talking about that. It has been a very, very smart business decision on our part that continues to play out today in in a positive way across communities that we're operating in. And I want to talk a little bit about scale. So you plan on staying committed to Appalachia, obviously. It's where you're from. Like you said, it is a region and part of the country that has held the country up for so long and then hasn't necessarily been treated as well or recognized as such. I just read this headline. I think it was Motley Fool. This ag tech disruptor just saw a nearly 40% jump in sales. This is like from September 2nd, so it's very recent. And it talks about how you need to fund growth and funding growth is expensive. So how much is it to fund this growth? When do you see the return and where will you be expanding regionally? We will be quadrupling our farm network this year. So we're going from one farm, which is, these are massive. We'll have almost 8 million square feet under management across our facilities. My background before this was building some of the largest solar in the U.S. for the Department of Defense. So large infrastructure. This is some of the largest infrastructure build out in the U.S. that's quietly happening. And we've been able to do it in the middle of a global pandemic and supply chain disruption. So we'll have four farms open at the end of the year. We'll go from just growing tomatoes to growing tomatoes, cucumbers, strawberries, salad greens, and a whole variety of, of produce. And then we're constantly you know, evaluating non-dilutive capital to raise money to build the business. But ultimately, the grocers and the retailers need this product. And the meetings we have, I have no doubt that almost all fruits and vegetables, not only in the U.S., but around the world, will eventually be grown in a CEA facility. The feedback we're getting from consumers, but really mainly grocers, you look at what we're de-risking when they have to battle against drought in California. Look at tomato crop in California getting ripped out right now. You have foodborne E. coli outbreaks with leafy greens that happen at major restaurant chains every quarter. You have labor conditions where the USDA just blocked avocado imports from Mexico because there were forced labor on farms, which, by the way, pause there and let that sink in. It's 2022, and we have forced labor on farms coming to our shelves in the U.S. Unacceptable. So you could lay out 15 different risks. CEA solves for all that. So the demand is endless. It's how do you finance that demand? And the good thing is the capital markets have generally always figured it out. When demand exceeds supply, the capital ends up becoming abundant, which then there's a lower cost of capital. And then that capital then is deployed to go build out an industry. It happened in EVs. It happened in renewable energy. It will happen in CEA. The question is, are we early? Are we on time? When will the transition play out? But it will play out and we'll likely see it before 2030. You're going to see a radical build out across the U.S. of CEA facilities. And it's just a matter of how much, how fast, not if, but more when. Most companies, especially startups have, or early stage companies have a defining moment. Who's a customer, a partner, 
a stakeholder investor that really was that moment that helped them become legit, credible, and scale. What grocer, retailer, customer, partner, who was that defining moment for you when you were starting out? Well, we've been at many of the top 25 grocers and we've been at many of the fast food chains. And I don't think it's a defining moment as much as it is how much we have learned that there's a lot of exposure in the fresh fruit and vegetable supply lines. And I would say if I had to pick one, I would say COVID in the early parts of COVID was the defining moment. So that's what ended up pushing App Harvest to go public and raising nearly a half a billion dollars in 2021 is that the fire alarms were going off that, wait a second, we import 70% of our fresh fruits and vegetables into the U.S. So we're the largest economy in the world. And we want to talk about resiliency and we want to preach to the world about sustainability and resiliency. We're importing 70% of our fresh fruits and vegetables. And oh, something as simple as COVID can threaten that fresh food supply going onto our grocery store shelves. That was, I hate to call that a defining moment as much as it was just a reality check. But we had our governor in Kentucky, brought our team in very closely at the time. He was the youngest governor in the U.S. He was terrified. He was mortified. He's getting security briefings on how we might not be able to stock grocery store shelves with fresh food. I was getting investor phone calls on, wait a second, is this statistic real? And yeah, it's real. We import two-thirds of our fresh fruits and vegetables into the U.S. Since then, it's really been kind of a trickle of awakening across consumers, investors, regulators, grocers, fast food chains that all see tons of exposure in how they're sourcing their current supply of fresh fruits and vegetables. And then our job is just to execute. We just need to do the blocking and tackling, the day-to-day hard work, show up, do the job, get good quality fresh food out the door at a reasonable price. As long as we do that, there's an endless amount of supply that we can put on the store shelves. So for us, it's just grow the good food, grow it at a reasonable price, and the ability to get on store shelves is there all day long. Does CEA only work at scale, or is there kind of like a lighter version of it for smaller kind of mom-and-pop family-owned farms that have less acreage? That's what we've been working on here in Kentucky, and we have about five universities trying to figure out. Right now, you have these field offices for land-grant universities, and we're trying to figure out how do we take what we're learning and make it widely available and adoptable to medium and small size farmers. But the reality is today, we're competing with imports. And those imports have, on a good day, you're paying somebody $5 a day. That's a good day. So think of a bad day. That goes into your price of a fruit and vegetable. So when people are asking me about unit economics of a fruit and vegetable, ultimately, I'm competing with cartels that are not acting legally and are skirting anything and everything in order to produce a fruit and vegetable with heavy chemicals, forced labor, maybe child labor, questionable practices. That all goes into a price per pound. So I would argue that's an artificially suppressed price in agriculture today where we're not weighing in the cost of water, we're not weighing in the cost of soil degradation, we're not weighing in the cost of labor. And what I would think everyone in in agriculture and food today should make a living wage seems reasonable, right? Like, it's completely reasonable. Can we just put that into law and like, let the private sector figure it out downstream? But how do you make this available small, medium size? We're doing it at scale 
because scale gives us the best chance to compete on price. And so for us, it's just growing a lot of stuff allows us to compete on price and then being as close to markets as possible. So for us, it's having that scale gets the cost down, allows us to compete under the current constraints. We haven't talked about it, and it's probably not as important, but it is a factor. And thank you for explaining the daisy chain effect, because there are human rights issues involved in this that people don't typically talk about. But when you think about what you're doing and the cost and everything that's going into it, one thing you didn't mention is flavor and quality. I'm going to guess that what you're doing probably produces a better product, not just a healthier, safer, and all those things you talked about, and better for the environment. Oh, I mean, I eat mainly plants, and our product is far superior than that of product being shipped two or 3,000 miles. I mean, it's like cardboard being put on a truck. Martha Stewart's on her board. Martha will be back with me in a couple of weeks here in Kentucky. And I remember actually sitting with Travis here who's on our team. We were packaging up the first tomatoes to mail to her overnight to her to get her feedback. I'd be scared. I'd like hold my breath. Right? No, it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh my gosh. No, it's an incredible product. And for me, the exciting thing, it's an affordable price. We want to make our product available for the 90% of Americans. There's a couple of celebrity chefs that have come out trying to, I'm a soil loyalist. I am as go into the woods, wild forage. Like you want to get the best food, just take off your shoes, go walk, grab stuff, put it on your plate. And a couple of celebrity chefs were, there was a New York Times piece and it was quoted us and then them at their Michelin star white tablecloth restaurant. We have to like take a step back and realize the number one priority of all of us in food is let's make that food available to everyone at an affordable price. And like, let's not bicker and fight at the top about, ooh, I grew it this way, or ooh, I grew it this way, or I had this. Yes, we should be, we should be hard on ourselves on how do we better grow nutritious food, and we should criticize each other. But let's do it under the framework of how do we make that available to the 90% of Americans or half the people that go to Walmart that live under the poverty line. That's who we should be prioritizing and not like, is this going to get me my Michelin? I don't know. Does it get you your Michelin? It should, but I don't even know who gives out these stars anyways and all this. You know, but like, how do we take the food system that's so broken in the U.S., so broken? It's abysmal. You look at our health outcomes related to our diet. We've got to change that. How do we take the elite food system that we have at the very, very top and turn that around and go, let's make this food available for everybody. And that's been our goal. And it's not an easy answer. One way we're doing it is through scale. And you had the scale question earlier. Travis just handed me a note card. 1.5 million tomato plants, 1 million strawberry plants, and 25 miles of salad greens will be growing inside of our facilities at the end of this year. So for us, scale is about getting to the American consumer and making it available to everybody. And so for us, scale is really about connecting with the consumer and making it available. Yeah. And, you know, one of the many reasons why I asked about the opposite of scale, but it is scale, but also templating for the, the smaller farms is, I don't know if you've ever heard of this movement called Outstanding in the Field and a couple chefs out in Bridgehampton, but they do it all around the world and they host these big dinners and, and all of it's organic and mostly in fields. And we were in Sagaponic for our 24-year wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago. We went to this event and it was Marilee's farm stand and she's like the third or fourth generation. It's been in the family for hundreds of years, okay? 
and they're surrounded by billionaires out in the Hamptons and they're potato farmers and they can't succeed anymore as potato farmers or even tomato farmers. They're having to like basically open distilleries. And by the way, their distilleries are really good, but it's sad that they have to do that. It's really sad. And they're competing, like you said, with growers outside the US for potatoes. Yeah. And we just have to look at the value stack. I was at Harvard Business School about a week ago. They did a case study on App Harvest and I had the opportunity to kind of just engage with some of the faculty and ask questions. What is value and how we've created this system of value? It just has to be looked at. And yes, there's value to the planet and how you create value or degrade value related to the planet. But then people, us individuals and our healthcare system of pay for it after it's broken versus make it available on the front end and then it's not broken. Like this is not rocket science. It's really pretty simple. You give the human body what it needs, it tends to operate pretty well. You give the human body what it doesn't need and it's foreign and it's not used to, it breaks down and degrades. That value of how we're valuing food the production of food, the health consequences of food, it is going to bankrupt this country. Healthcare will bankrupt the country. We're going to degradate environmental lands all across the country the way we're producing it. Or we can take a step back and go, wait a second, is there a way to make this food widely available? So good farmers like your friend that has that potato farm that is creating good organic food, good for the soil, good for people, good for the land, good and healthy. How do we make sure that survives so that people can have better healthy outcomes and we're not just incentivizing the dollar menu that's poisoning us with cornstarch and sugary drinks and whatever else it is? But that's why your show here is important, challenging those 30,000 listeners or plus that you have to go, whatever organization you work at and whatever job you might have, how do you take power each and every day into your own hands? Whether you're an executive or an entry-level employee, work for government, a nonprofit, private sector, but how do we recreate systems to better align with people and planet? And if we don't do it, we have a pretty stark future ahead. And one is definitely agriculture. We're trying to solve problems in agriculture, but it cannot be done with us alone. It's going to have to be with a broader group of stakeholders. And and we have to more holistically look at the value chain, the value being offered, and frankly, the value that's being degraded through current practices. As a layman, everyday consumer, how would I know that I'm getting app harvest when I'm buying my fresh produce, fruits, vegetables? Well, on the leafy greens, it'll be saying an app harvest on the package later this year. On the tomatoes, if you look for the sticker, it'll say it. And then we're going to lean in. We're going to, over time, try to make it easily and more recognizable. But right now, you might be at a fast food chain eating something, and that tomato has our product on it. You wouldn't even know that. So we've just kind of seeped into the supply chain and continue to do that. And you'll start to see our name more and more in the weeks, months, years ahead. But you can always just ask your grocer and they can point you in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's important because, as you know, especially the younger generations, I think about my own kids, but Gen Z, they're going to put their money where their conscience is and where their passions are. So I can see how eventually, whether it's a fast food or a grocer, retailer, they should be proud of that. They should use that as a marketing advantage to sell more. We agree. One last question, and you've been incredibly generous with your time. And this has been so interesting. I don't think I'll ever actually shop ever again in the same way after this recording. A lot of companies on who are B Corps, a lot who meet B Corp standards, maybe even exceed them, but have decided that's like a lot of work. No, not going to do that. You are a B Corp. 
you were B Corp, I think, from the very beginning, or at least close to the beginning. Just talk a little bit about why you think it's important and why you think it's worth the effort and the time. So we're filed as a public benefit corporation. So even if you don't have the B Corp status, you can always put it into your filing. It's like a C Corp, but a public benefit corporation. That's just how you file a company. I strongly encourage everybody to do that. It's a signal to investors that you stand for something more than just shareholder capitalism, but you have stakeholders beyond just your investor shareholder, which I think is where we're all moving. But the B Corp status is important. It shows that a third party has verified the work that you're doing. I would say, I've said time and again on this, we need to make it more inclusive and available to everyone. I mean, the B Corp is you got to put time into it. It's going to cost you a little money. You're going to have your employees putting time into it. And yeah, I would challenge companies to get in the queue and try to dig in and learn about B Corp and sign up. I would also challenge B Corp, if they're listening, to make it more available and accessible for every company, big and small across the country. You know, what we're realizing in this polarized world we live in, we're all interconnected. And there's no, well, at the very top, we're going to do it this way and we're going to solve these problems. And then the rest of the country, we're going to do it this way. So for me, it's more about how do we get the 90% of small, medium-sized businesses, you know, to sign up and be a B Corp? Yeah, let's get our Fortune 500 companies to do it too. But how do we get everybody along for the ride? And that's a challenge to B Corp. But on the other side of the aisle, it has been incredibly helpful for investors who want to look at you and say, hey, what what do you have to verify? Your story backs up with numbers to customers, to anything and everything in between. There's a lot of value in having that B Corp certification. And I highly recommend it to anyone that's curious. Yeah. And I agree with you. And the point of every company's kind of formation and growth, you have to rethink your systems. Like we talked about systems earlier and B Corp probably could think about ways to accelerate that path to progress for certain companies without denigrating or diluting the value and the efficacy of what they're trying to do. Because I think that's the biggest complaint is the work streams are so onerous. But I love the accountability of it all. And I also love the direction. And they were very early. I'm all about scale. Our climate is collapsing around us. And it's all about numbers and scale. And 100% of 1% is 1%. 50% of 100% is 50%. So we need to figure out how to widen the aperture, make more people a part of these conversations, get more people at the table. We've used that term, fight the food fright, as a campaign here. At your breakfast table, lunch, dinner, have conversations, but how do we just get more people on the boat and in the ride? It might not be perfect. It might be a little messy, but more is going to be better if we're going to tackle any of these problems that keep facing us as it relates to our climate. And and so for me, it's been about scale and how do you achieve scale? It's not going to be perfect, but let's be really good and let's be big. I love Fight the Food Fright. So my only complaint or my only criticism is you've got Martha, but not Snoop. I mean, if you can get Snoop as well, then I'm in. <laughs> I'm all in. I'm reaching out to the different personality types now. And who knows, maybe next year you'll see a couple people grabbing a tomato or a strawberry. That It takes those personalities to elevate these conversations and bring to the mainstream. But me and Martha have had the Snoop conversation. But my, hey, you know what? I'll take Martha any day of the week. She's, she's one of the hardest working people I've ever come across in my life. We've been very fortunate that she's rolled up her sleeves with us here and been inside of our facilities and gives me very stern advice, but she's a hard worker. Yeah. Hey, listen, growers like growers, so Snoop should be in. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Pull in there before it goes off the rails. 
Jonathan, it's such a pleasure to have you on. I love what you guys are doing and I can't wait to continue to follow your success. Thanks again for coming on Brand on Purpose. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing bop at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.